exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God of this Advent season, we pray that you would enlighten our eyes. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to see you alive and with us even today. Amen. And you may be seated. By a show of hands, honestly, who was hoping we were going to watch a Christmas movie for a second on Netflix? I mean, I kind of was. I was like, huh, could go for Elf this morning. <laughs> My name is Mindy. And I'm a longtime member here at Pearl, having attended for the first time in Advent of 2002. Um, Throughout my time here on as a community member, I've served on staff for the last 18 months as a pastor of families um, and done a lot of other things. But ironically, I've never given a sermon in person except as a volunteer. So it's fitting that this morning I'm a volunteer standing up here doing this. And it's actually better for me that way because I feel less pressure when I'm not being paid to be up here. When Mike and Ben and I set this sermon series last August, I was looking forward to being a part of it. And I'm grateful to share with you this morning, even though I'm no longer a pastor. This Advent, we've been exploring the season of light through the lens of womanist theology, which intends to reimagine old religious language and symbols to give them text to give them depth, texture, and relevance for today. And so rather than highlight the traditional characters of Advent, the male characters of Joseph, Zechariah, the Magi, shepherds, the angels, all who are said to be male, we've been looking at Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, and today, Anna. These women, without power due to societal norms, are resilient. For even without power, we have seen that these women carve out space in their worlds to nurture and sustain life. They do so through displaying audacious hope, courageously trusting in their deepest knowing, and pouring out lavish generosity, and refusing to let their limitations define their lived experiences. Now, very little is said in scripture about Anna, But that doesn't mean there is little that we can know about her or learn from her. It just means that we'll have to use our imaginations a bit to flesh out her story and its significance. To be clear, using our imagination isn't wrong when reading the scriptures. In fact, it can be very helpful, especially when there's so little in the text to go off of. So to get beyond a literal reading of the text where literalism is often the least thoughtful understanding of any language, we must engage our full range of senses to scratch at the deeper meaning and how this beautiful woman's life might speak to us. So I invite you to open your hearts and minds as we take a look at the life of Anna. 
The story of Anna is the shortest of the Advent stories that we're going to study in this series. She appears in just three verses and is often overshadowed by the story of Simeon, which is just before hers in the book of Luke. And it's told in much greater detail. I'm sure we're more familiar with Simeon. Now, full disclosure, I hadn't spent much time considering Anna prior to studying the sermon. In fact, I've never heard a sermon with Anna as the center. And when I imagined her, I truly pictured a woman like the old lady pictured here. Do you recognize her? <laughs> yeah, she's the woman from 1964 Mary Poppins, um, who feeds the bird in the center, birds in the center of the square. And although, given what we read about Anna in the book of Luke, I didn't imagine her with a sweet smile like this woman in the picture. I imagined her face looking more like this Rembrandt rendering of Anna. If we can get a look at that picture. Super old, very, very wrinkled, sad, with a somewhat pained stare of an expression on her face. Let's take a look again at the scripture for today. Here's what we read in Luke. There was, all, um, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Now, in order to kind of suss out what's going on here with Anna, I want to take this kind of slowly and look at the individual pieces to highlight a few things. First of all, her name Anna means favor or grace. And the meaning of this name holds some irony, don't you think? I mean, as, as it's seen in her experience, she had very little tangible favor or grace happening in her life. She's also said to be the daughter of Phanuel, or Penuel, or however you want to say it, of the tribe of Asher, which I do recognize. The tribe of Asher was taken captive by the Assyrians and as a group never officially returned to the land of Israel. Asher is known as one of the so-called lost tribes of Israel. But here we see Anna at the temple in Jerusalem. So we can infer maybe that a man in her family remembered their Israelite roots and either moved their family there or married her off to someone in Jerusalem. So likely, her faith was important to her. Next, we read that she was a prophet. She's one of a small handful of women, given this distinctive title in the New Testament scriptures, and we aren't really told why. Perhaps Anna was one to whom it was given to know events before and after, and one through whom God spoke to others. We don't really know. But we do know she was of great age. Some read the text as saying that she was 84 at the time that she meets Jesus in the temple, but others calculate that she had been a widow for 84 years at the time of meeting Jesus. And so then you have to add the seven years she was married before her husband passed, and then the 14-ish years that she was when she got married in the first place. This would make her about 106 years old at the time the story takes place. She was also a widow, we're told, just seven years into her marriage while still a very young woman. Her husband died, leaving her with no children. The situation of a childless woman in the New Testament time period was very, very sad. The women who had children were called blessed, but those without were considered cursed. 
The life of Hebrew women and their happiness depended on whether or not they had children. Their future as well was secured by producing especially a male heir who would inherit whatever means the family had. Now, it wasn't Anna's fault that she didn't have kids, but others may have told her she was cursed because she didn't have an heir to provide for her. Although she was a young widow and perhaps could have remarried, we're told she remains a widow. And as a widow, she never left the temple, but remained night and day fasting. When death ravaged her own home, Anna turned from all the typical concerns of women her age to join the band of holy women who devoted themselves to continual attendance at the night and day services of the temple. Now, I don't imagine her in a retired nook of the temple somewhere praying or in a corner where just women supplicated God. I imagine her joining with others openly in the presence of the congregation, pouring out her soul audibly in the temple as a prophet would. Lastly, we read, coming up to them, them being Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and Simeon, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. I love this picture here of Anna. See if you can picture it too. Close your eyes and see if you can see her. That day in the temple was no mere coincidence. Anna, in her great age, shuffled towards the temple to pray for the coming of Messiah, as she had done every day of her long pilgrimage. And although he seemed to tarry, she waited for him, believing that he would come. And on this day, the miracle happened. As she entered the temple, she heard sounds of exultation and joy proceeding from the inner courts. And then from the lips of Simeon, whom she surely was familiar with, she heard the words, Now, Lord, dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And coming up to them at that very moment, gazing upon the holy child who was none other than her long-looked-for Messiah, Anna, too, must have been ready to depart in peace. Upon seeing the Messiah with her own failing eyes, she gives thanks she gathers her ragged robes and with the legs of a much younger woman, heads out into the crowd of worshipers to deliver the good news that she had been waiting most of her life for with exuberance and great joy. Now, how we see Anna in her life before, during, and after this incredible encounter in the temple is so important because therein lies what she has to tell us today, I think. So given what we've just learned about Anna from the text and what we've inferred using our imaginations, how do we really see her? Do we see her a weathered, poor, lonely, and forlorn woman who by all accounts has lost everything of value in her culture and so has resigned herself to living as a lowly widow reliant upon the kindness and mercy of others? Do we see a woman who bitterly lives with the memory of all that she does not have who agonizes over what could have been if only life had been more kind to her. But now, just spends every waking moment roaming the hallowed corridors of the temple like a ghost, waiting for death to relieve her from her life of sorrow. I mean, who would blame her? In Hebrew history, it was common for widows to continue living in poverty because they didn't have a man to take care of them. I mean, that's why the Bible says in the Old and New Testament to care for widows and orphans in their distress, that the churches, this is the church's work. 
In her time, women depended exclusively on men. So since Anna's spouse had died, the land and anything left of the inheritance would have gone to another male relative. Anna was truly left alone with nothing. And given the state of her life circumstances, I mean, bitterness seems a pretty viable option here. I think that this painting of the scene where Anna and Simeon meet Jesus, Mary, and Joseph depicts Anna in this way. I mean, take a look at it. It means she's certainly old. She's the one on the left, by the way, not in blue. (laughs) She's certainly old, and she appears to me as somewhat hardened, perhaps by the bitterness of her situation and the loss that she has lived with year after year after year. This way of seeing Anna makes sense, perhaps, given her past. However, then her response to seeing Jesus, as we read in the text, doesn't really seem to fit with that rendering of her. Unless we're to believe that her lifelong sorrow and her bitter melancholy demeanor practiced over years and years of loneliness and poverty was immediately and miraculously replaced with joyful enthusiasm upon seeing the baby Jesus. I don't know. Perhaps there's another way of seeing Anna that's more consistent with the response we see from her in Luke 2 when she meets the Messiah. She must have felt bitterness as a young woman full of grief and sorrow at the losses she experienced. She was fully human after all. And there must have been a period of time that she spent mourning and grieving and considering how in the world she was going to make it in the world. Her options were limited. This woman, after losing everything of value to women, not only didn't pursue regaining her status as a married person with the possibility of having children, Not only did she choose remaining a widow, alone and poor, dependent upon others for her livelihood, she chose to give her life in service to God. Now here we have to ask why. Why? Why? Why did she choose to give her life in service to God? Why did she choose this course of action? I think the Advent stories that we've been looking at and that we've heard shed light on Anna's choice. Because like Elizabeth, she chose to hope, regardless of the limiting circumstances that she found herself in. And like Mary, the mother of Jesus, she courageously chose to heed her inner knowing, to trust the spirit within her that was pointing her in a direction that defied the social norms of the day. And like Mary of Bethany, she chose to generously give her life in service to others, namely to her God rather than seek status and security for herself in the pursuit of what was most prized for women in her time. And the last possibility I want to suggest today in Anna's story is that she chose joy. She chose to pursue a life of service because it was what she treasured above all else. It was her joy. Last week, Mike pointed out That in the perspective of womenist theology, future extravagance or abundance is not the perspective or lens through which the stories in Scripture are understood, but rather through today's scarcity. Womenist theology forces us to consider the now because today is all that we have. We cannot count on tomorrow. And so Anna declares to us today, choose joy. Give your life to that which brings you deep fulfillment now. See, Anna, after losing everything of value in her culture, decided to spend the rest of her life in the temple. And from there in the temple, 
She could experience joy in her life through participating in, in the life of all who came to the temple to worship. What Anna did was open herself up to all that she lacked. Let's remember that the temple was the center of life for Jerusalem. It was there that children were brought to be dedicated and blessed, taught and married, where people came to pray and make big decisions in life and find refuge from their problems. The temple was the focal point of the community in her day and animated the focal point of her life. In doing so, she touched the lives of all who entered that sacred place. 84 years is a long time. Imagine how many people she would have seen in the temple and all the people who knew her. They knew she would be there to greet them when they came, to laugh with them, hug their children, pray for their families. Generations would know her. This woman that helped them smile and cried for them without bitterness of her life situation gave away the joy that she chose every day. Take a look at this alternative picture of Anna. And as you do, listen. Her prophetic message to us might sound something like, grieve the losses, break open, and pour out your lament. Validate your own human experience of scarcity. And, and rise to delight in this one life that you've been given. Choose joy now. Choose that which makes you come alive. Defy the social, cultural, and religious norms of your day, whatever they may be. And in doing so, behold with your own eyes God's salvation. Choose joy. Well, that's certainly easier said than done. And what does it look like to choose joy anyway? Well, it's certain to look different for every individual, for each one of us is unique in our makeup. It may mean something big, like reevaluating life choices and altering your course. It may mean something small, like choosing to stay in bed an extra half hour on Saturday morning, or not coming to church on a Sunday to go for a hike instead. That would be me choosing joy. <laughs> you see, it doesn't have to be a huge choice. That changes your life as Anna's choice did. But make no mistake, joy is a choice. And sometimes that choice may come with a price. Sometimes choosing joy looks like saying no and being misunderstood. Sometimes it looks like saying yes and being misunderstood. Sometimes it looks like letting go of something. Sometimes choosing joy is the hardest thing to do. But as one of my favorites, Glennon Doyle says, not choosing joy is hard too. So choose your hard. Now, while I believe Anna's message to choose joy is truly for all people, regardless of their gender identity, I do want to speak specifically to those who consider themselves women for just a moment. Because this whole notion of choosing joy, that which makes us come alive, gets tricky. Especially if you grew up in a religious or a patriarchal household, where you may have been conditioned to think of surrender and submission and service and suffering for the sake of everyone else's benefit to be the greatest joy a woman could choose for herself. Some of us women may have internalized a belief that a life lived in this way was an indication of great faith and trust in God. And here's the kicker. 
possibly the worst part. If in trying to live this way to please God and others, you happened to lose yourself along the way, then you were most blessed. In fact, suffering the loss of self was be, to be considered pure joy. Wait, wait, what? Suffering the loss of self was to be considered pure joy. If you think I'm being overly dramatic about this, just consider for a moment that in religious and non-religious settings alike, the world often has no problem with a woman not having a life. The world keeps humming along happily and makes few complaints that women are doing too much for others. Generally speaking, we're fine when women spend themselves entirely for the sake of others. Sure, sometimes like Anna, the choice to serve others is choosing joy. But how often today are we pausing to say to women, yes, 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 we see that you do so much for others, but is this truly bringing you joy? The world is fine with women living a joyless and sacrificial life. In fact, the world may even scoff and misunderstand a woman who chooses joy on her own terms. Perhaps Anna wasn't understood by those around her either. Perhaps they wondered why she didn't remarry and pursue what was considered the joyous life for a woman in her time. But Anna chose an unconventional life for herself. She chose what filled her heart with true joy every day. And her impact was great. Her life was a prophetic message. And in choosing joy, she was among the first to whom Advent light dawned. Will you pray with me? Divine Mother, this Advent season, as we await the coming Christmas morning, may we be filled with audacious hope for our lives today, even in the midst of unprecedented times. May we choose to honor and trust our deepest knowing, despite what others may think. May we choose lavish generosity, even in our scarcity. And may we bravely, with great intention, pursue that which gives us true joy, in big and small ways, for joy permeates our lives and opens our hearts to see the divine alive and with us this Christmas. Amen. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.